Today I'm speaking with Arun Lucas and Craig Sullivan, both from the UK. And uh, Arun is managing director from Zuko, uh, the form analytics software platform and form optimization consultancy. And Craig is also known as Optimize or Die and the all-around zero hero in our industry. Uh, Craig is someone who has been running iterative user-centered form design since 2001 and A-B testing uh, them since 2004. So a lot of experience around the table today. We talk about all the things that can make or break the forms on your website. This episode is made possible by our partners Chameleon and Online Influence Institute. My name is Gilles Janser and welcome to the Shiro Cafe podcast. It's a good question to start with. Why are forms important? And really the way that I look at these is that they are a lens or doorway onto uh, a service, a product, a process, and often form interactions are a key part of the start of your relationship with a company, right? And it's going to characterize the way that you feel about that whole product experience is being funneled through a form interaction. So these are doorways into your product or service. Sometimes they're low intent. Uh, in most cases, they're very high intent entry point. So it's incredibly important to get right because um, the way that people feel about your brand is the sum of all the interactions and messages, how easy they found it to use. So if you have a terrible form, they're already feeling bad about your brand before you've even begun a relationship. So uh, it's the doorway and the the first part and hopefully a long-term fruitful relationship. And just to build on that, Craig, with, with some data, you know, we at Zuko, we've obviously got a benchmark of hundreds, thousands, if not thousands of forms. And we, when we look at that, kind of the average form across everything, uh, on the average form, about two-thirds of form visitors never convert. So that's two-thirds. Anyone who goes to your form does not successfully complete. So there's always a big room for improvement. This is why they're so important. You may spend millions of euros, pounds, dollars getting people to your site, even pushing people towards your form. But then if you don't know why they're dropping off and you're not doing the analysis at that point, it, it, you know, which many companies don't, it's like a big black box for them. Um, if you're not doing that, then you're missing a trick. And, and then using the analogy of, of uh, forms being a doorway, would you say that um, uh, on most sites uh, nowadays we have uh, these uh, GDPR cookie notifications? Uh, would you say that's that's already a form? Yeah, you can start with a really simple, basic form, uh, choose your cookie setting, yeah. and then um, to go forward? Yeah. And those those can be confusing too, but it's also about balance and compliance and uh, ease of use. One of the interesting things I've discovered recently from A-B testing cookie messages, and Amazon are actually doing this, is by having a cookie message that completely dominates the viewport. It's like, you cannot use this site until you have used the cookie message. You would think, that's a really bad thing to do from a UX point of view, but not really if it massively improves your data quality and opt-in rates, right? If you have a tiny little cookie message down the bottom right that you hardly ever see, then people will have a whole session where they forget to 
make the choice so you're not tracking them at all, as legally you shouldn't be doing, but also you end up with all the session data that doesn't have the first few page views of the session data. So your data is rubbish, right? So there's a data quality issue and an opt-in issue that can actually be massively improved by the design of one tiny form interaction, which is the cookie message, and actually making it really big so it takes up almost all of the mobile viewport is a really good way of saying, look, you really have to make a choice. Let's do the, let's get the cookie thing out of the way, right? And then you can see the page, right? And that, that was counterintuitive to me at first, but I A-B tested it. And when you see data opt-in rates going from 40 to 73%, then you can't really argue against that. It worked, right? Um, I guess it, it depends a bit on the website and the, uh, uh, how... Uh, motivated that user is. I mean, when you go to Amazon, I want that product, right? So uh, I'm re really motivated to go forward to that. But if you're visiting a website and the motivation is is quite low, um, maybe I want to read an article there, um, but semi-interested and then I see this big pop-up and then say, okay, well, never mind then. <laughs> But it's also about the psychology of the options and the placement of the buttons, right? Uh, there's NOYB.EU has been talking about deceitful practice here. But good practice here is to make it really clear. And you have two options. You either, uh, I accept it, the cookies, right? It's cool. Cookies are fine, right? The second choice should not be reject all cookies. The second option should be I wish to control my cookies or customize them or manage them. Then when you click on that, you go to a submenu that has all the cookies defaulted off and a button that says apply cookie settings. And then people can adjust them if they like. But essentially, it does exactly the same thing of giving them the option to reject. But it's not presented, presented as a binary choice of accept or reject. It's saying... If you are someone who is worried about your privacy and wish to exercise control over some of these cookie options, then this is the flow for you, right? For everybody else, just click the accept button. But the way it's presented with accept or reject sometimes leads to a much lower data opt-in rate because of the way that the question is framed, right? Yeah. And uh, you guys, uh, to go back to the to, to all forms, uh, you guys made a nice list of uh, a lot of parts that uh, forms uh, consist of. And um, uh, the idea is to go through them uh, one by one, uh, all these issues that you might encounter when uh, when optimizing uh, for forms. And uh, really glad that you guys can, uh, can share your experience with uh, how you guys do that. Yeah. So let's start with the first one. Uh, mobile versus desktop forms. Uh, the differences in, in optimization you um, need to be aware of uh, when, uh, when using those. Um, Craig? There are, there are really two key differences that you're going to encounter when you start exhaustively testing forms across multiple devices. And the first thing you're going to figure out is that you need to use real hardware in your hand, right? simulators, emulators, even cloud devices are not perfect, right? Because it's not a real phone, okay? So the I always recommend to people to use real hardware and actually figure out what the hardware is that their customers are actually using on their site. You know, is it 70% iPhones, 30% Android? Do you even know? Have you run the data to see what people are arriving at your site with that it should work on, right? This is a traffic question. You need to answer that one. Um, so usually the total cost of that testing hardware for most companies is less than 1,500 euros, right? Right? And 
I can confidently say for over 90% of you out there, if you have an iPhone 8 sized phone, you know, a 4.7 inch, uh, a 6.1 inch size iPhone XR, a Samsung S10, a Mac laptop and a Windows laptop, that will act as a proxy for between 85 and 95% of your revenue and traffic, right? So if your stuff works on those devices and you can check this in your data, then what you do is you test your site with those devices. You know, it's like, what cars do people bring into our garage? Oh, it seems to be all Jaguar cars. Maybe we should learn how to fix Jaguar cars then. That would be really cool. So Use the knowledge that you have in your data, be data-driven about how you know which are the golden geese uh, of devices that you must not kill when you are building or changing sites. But the most common problems that we see are really to do with uh, viewports and device integration. So the size of your screen, a lot of people don't know this, but the viewport on mobile is, if not the biggest, one of the biggest determinants of your conversion rate, right? Because of the way that the content fits inside the available space. If you scale it or do a bad job of fitting it, right, on that device, then you will get lower conversion. And if your design works great on your massive big iPhone, right, yay, I've got a 6.5-inch iPhone and it works on mine, that does not mean it will work on a small phone. Whereas if you have a small iPhone and your design works on that, I can guarantee you it will work fine on all of the other phones. It's an axiomatic rule. If it works in a small viewport, then it's probably likely it's going to work fine in a big viewport. So that's one of the problems. Second problem is device integration. You've got different keyboard handling. You've got cameras. You've got native payment stuff. You've got autofill and filling in your passwords, right? So it's really important to actually take advantage of the device hardware, right? And understand the device hardware from an HTML point of view. Yeah, the, the, I mean, those, those emulators, they often have this like theoretical uh, largest uh, viewport, but they don't always account for like browser bars taking up space. And then, yeah, like you said, with with, uh, with forms and, and keyboards, it, it happens quite often that the, the pop-up keyboard actually covers the form and you, you cannot see yep. what you're typing. Yeah, or it's the wrong keyboard. That's yeah. a very common problem. Or people have autocorrect turned on in the forms, you know. So layout stuff is pretty common in mobile, either the help, the messages, the chat, the chat control is over the top of the content. The help button is over the top of the form content. Yep. There's a back to top thing, so you can't click the button because it's over the button. <laughs> There's a sticky header or a sticky footer or a sticky add to cart that interferes yep. or a sticky submit button that interferes with the form. So usually there are a number of formatting and layout problems. Functionally, things just don't work as they should within the viewport of mobile. Somebody has thought they've designed a mobile form, but they've never really tried to use it on a mobile, right? Designing it and seeing it being used are two entirely yeah. different things. So make sure, make sure you cover like 80 85% of your users with uh, with, with physical yeah. devices. Four or five devices will cover it for most companies, you know, and buy the hardware. The ROI 
that you will get if you're spending any money on advertising or hiring people or building digital product. It's expensive, right? The cost of the hardware, you will get ROI on that within days or weeks because you won't have broken advertising and you won't have broken forms on your website. And those two things cost more money than the cost of buying the sodding hardware in the first place to make sure it works. Exactly. It sounds like extra work, but it's saving you a lot of money actually in the end. Okay, next one, uh, the submit button. So um, submit button, uh, kind of what I'd like to talk about here is we find often when we do analysis that, you know, this is often the biggest uplift for, for people who are optimizing their forms because you have users, they've spent all the time filling out the form, getting through, you know, whatever you're asking them. They click submit, but they still don't convert. Why is that? These are people, they want to give you money, they want to give you their details, and they still can't do it. So if you want to get uh, to identify some of the problem issues in your forms, looking at the submit button is often the, the quickest way of doing that. Uh, so the things you look at is, is you look at the data and say, what's happening after the submit button? After they try to submit, what are they doing? So firstly, what error messages are they seeing at that point? Which form fields are they returning to to try and fix? And then do they return multiple times to those fields? Do they not? Um, uh, what do they do? Do they do they abandon at that point? Or do they, you know, often you see, we see a lot that people try five, six, seven times to fix a field. And it's often a simple field like phone number. And they still can't do it. And it's like, well, people don't forget their own phone number. So there is something you are doing that is preventing someone who wants to give you their money and you've messed it up, you've lost them. So often those are the, you know, the biggest returns, uh, maybe not an overall conversion rate, but certainly in terms of revenues, often you, you see those those big, big jumps when you start looking yeah, at it. I saw this once at, a, at an auction website uh, where people, uh, it, it was mandatory to have an account at the auction website. Uh, there yeah. was a huge form, but the auction, I mean, the auction ends in 10, 9, 8. So there's a lot of time yeah. pressure there. <laughs> and we saw a lot of people just filling out their email address, only their email address, and hit submit, then fill another form, hit submit again, then just try to get into yeah. to the auction. Um, uh, and that didn't work. And a lot of, lot of failed submissions there. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think this is, you know, typically the first thing we look at is the submit button, what's happening to people who are submitting yeah. but not succeeding. And, and if you use the data uh, on that, that often gets you some quick answers. Yeah, and specifically with uh, e-commerce, I guess that's uh, with e-commerce, you could you the submit button is not always the end of the process. So you su submit all your data on the, on the e-commerce website, but then you go to an external payment provider. And that might yeah. also uh, indicate a problem there. Yeah, yeah, and you can identify what's going yeah. on. It's a classic data analysis piece. We spend a lot of time analyzing, you know, why people do and don't convert across a whole site, you know, or what stuff they buy or what combination of stuff. We do all this analysis. Yeah, when it comes to the form, a key entry point, we're not nearly doing enough data analysis. Most companies don't have form analytics that gives them this kind of data about what is happening inside the form. So the form remains a black box. Customers go in, some of them die and never make it out, and then a small trickle comes out the other end. Uh, and if it's like a black box like that, then you don't actually know what's going on inside, and it means that you can't optimize it. Yeah. Okay, next one. Uh, mobile keyboard layouts and autocorrects. <laughs> um, one of the funniest things here was a, a really large telco company who came to me 
and said, this is really strange, Craig, but the most edited field on our checkout form is the customer name on the first page. Um, is is there a problem here? Um, because we thought people would be able to spell their <laughs> names okay. And I was like, yeah, you know, after you get to about five or six, you know, it's not too much of a problem after that. You can generally spell your name properly. Um, and so I went and tested the form and found out that autocorrect was turned on in the name field, right? And unless you have a name that's in the dictionary, right? So you have a nice white Anglo-Saxon Protestant name, right? Then it's great. You'll be in the dictionary. Yay. You, uh, and it won't try and uh, uh, correct it. If you have like a couple of my friends, uh, Turkish name, right? Then it's going to indirectly discriminate against you because it's going to say that's a stupid name and correct it to something else. So this is why the the re-edits were the highest because lots of their customers were having to go and change the auto-corrected name back to the original one. The same happens with email address. If you have auto-capitalize on in an email address field, it doesn't matter if you have a capital in your email address field, but users, customers of websites do not know this. So if you put a capital in their email address, they will go, they've got my email address wrong, and they will go back and edit the email field to take the capital out, right? Because they think, because they're scared the form is going to reject them later on, right? It's crazy, but it's true, and you have to understand these things. So one of the biggest problems is that huge amounts of mobile sites have the wrong keyboard set, right? There are, you know, uh, uh, you have four keyboard layouts on mobile. You've got one for emails, you've got one for phone number, right? You've got one for numbers, and then you've got text, right? And just make sure you use the darned right keyboard layout, right? This is, it really annoys users and usability tests. They get really frustrated with this. Plus your data quality goes down because if the phone, the keys to put in a phone number are over 500% larger than they are on the alphanumeric keyboard, what do you think the chances are that they will find it easier to type in their phone number. They're like five times bigger, right? It's way easier. So there's less friction from doing this. But this is one of these strange things where a tiny change can have a massive difference in your form conversion because this really annoys people, right? Quite rightly. Yeah, you can also make mistakes with that, right? I mean, with uh, the, the postcode field, the zip code field, uh, for some countries, this will be numbers only. But for other countries, uh, that will include uh, letters too. Yeah. So you yeah. need to be careful uh, with that. And and talking about those kind of, this borders on validation, I guess. Uh, so next topic, inline yeah. validation. Yeah, to make sure basically, uh, well, on the one hand to help the users, but also to make sure that your own data quality is, is okay. Yes. So, uh, well, inline validation obviously is, is one of the things that, that we see consistently make a big difference to to form conversion. So there was a study by Luke Lablinsky uh, a few years ago now, but still very relevant. He saw a 22% uplift in forms that used inline validation uh, versus those that didn't. Uh, and we see that as well when ever any of our clients implement it. Um, and by that, I mean, essentially, you are validating the customer's answer when they put it in. 
And now there's basically this, this helps in a, in a number of ways. Firstly, it, you don't have the issue I talked about before about the submit button triggering all the error messages. You get the error message almost immediately. You don't have all the stress of uh, that, that that causes. The key, obviously, is to trigger it at the right time. Um, and, and Craig, I think, has uh, coined a phrase, premature error ejaculation. <laughs> I think you don't want to... To make it too soon, you don't want to give someone an error just as soon as they start yeah, typing. I think it, it happens hey. to me quite often when when they use uh, those validation on the, on the email field, and if, if there's no at in it or not not a dot in it, yeah. then it's, uh, yeah. it throws an error message. But yeah, of course, you you don't start with the at uh, at symbol, so yeah, yeah. get an error right away. <laughs> exactly. And typically, we find the best way to do it is when as soon as someone moves on from a field, yeah. so they focus on the next field. That's when you trigger it. And that is the most efficient way to do it because they're then like, okay, I'll go back and I'll amend it. Uh, I'm going to talk about error messages in particular later, so I won't jump ahead. But uh, obviously, this this is one of the, the the biggest factors we see in improving the forms conversion rate. Tell people they they've made an error almost immediately after they have. Yeah. If you do enough user testing with people walking through forms and talking out loud, you'll quickly discover that unlike you know, sort of people who work professionally with this stuff, they have increasingly raised cortisol levels as they go through filling out a form, right? And I could see it on people's faces, right? It's been measured in research. And the answer behind it is, is that the fear grows as they fill out the form that is going to come up with a sea of red error messages when they press the submit button, right? And this is why uh, inline validation works really well. But I've also run three A-B tests where we took the same form design, no other changes. One of them did the checking on submit. One of them did uh, inline validation. And the third method was to put a tick or feedback, right, or color shading to indicate Yes, you have successfully passed that field. That job is done. And the best converting one was always that one. The the inline validation massively increased the conversion, but we got another raise off giving people feedback that they had passed the validation rules inside the form. So so you say you should put this on on every field, even if it's just if even if the check is just just did you fill out this field? Then that's already right. Even if it's your name, yeah. right? And I worried that people would feel patronized, you know, or you've got your name right, tick, <laughs> you know, like you would feel offended. Yeah. But no, we tested it in the lab. The feedback I do get is uh, people say at the end of the testing, I wish all forms were like this. It tells you how you're doing as you go along so that you know that when you get to the button at the end, you're not going to have any errors because it's told you already that everything is right. There's no anxiety anymore. The the cortisol vanishes, right? There's no anxiety building in the form. And that building anxiety does not help your chances of conversion, right? Uh, In fact, the biggest correlation with form abandonment is the presence of more or one one or more errors in the process. So if you can avoid throwing any errors, you will massively increase your form conversion rate. It can still be tricky, right? So if someone fills in their name wrong, or what we just spoke about, there's an autocorrect, and you move to the next field, the name is wrong, but you still get this green tick box. Yeah, that's true. 
yeah. those are situations that that's there's happening. nothing that we can yeah. do we, there's nothing that we can do about that but people tend to notice on mobile that the autocorrect is happening yeah. because it's highlighted color wise exactly. in the viewport yeah. and it's quite a sudden change right so you can see a data value you've just typed where your eye focus is pretty close to suddenly change yeah. right and that's also jarring for users it's not just the fact that you've changed the spelling of their name it's the fact that something has suddenly changed yeah. in the interface that they weren't expecting yeah, and if you're doing it right like like uh, we just said the the, the check should only take place um, uh, after someone moves to the next field right so you, i would expect people to uh, correct their name first before moving on to the next field anyway and what about people who have short uh, last names so uh, a friend of mine who has ing ng yep. as his last name right it, it forms all the time reject mm. his surname because they say it must have three or four minimum characters right who came up with that idea like somebody who didn't have many friends from around the world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and the same with first names, of course. Yeah. Talking to the world's greatest optimization experts here at Zero Cafe convinced me that there are just two features that separate a good from a great optimization platform. It must make optimization easy for your whole team and it must scale. Chameleon does both. It's a single unified web and full stack experimentation platform with AI powered personalization and feature flagging. I especially like Chameleon Hybrid, which lets you continue to use any client side MarTech you like to help build and analyze server side tests without relying on developers. Learn more about Chameleon at www.kameleoon.com. Next one, uh, confirming the email uh, and uh, password fields. Um, why do we do this anymore? Because it's not necessary, as you pointed out, uh, Guido, earlier on. People can know their email address, right? Um, uh, Zuko's experience is removing confirm password got a uh, 56% increase in conversion, yeah. uh, whilst password resets remain steady. I've run the same experiments. I've removed email and password confirmation off many sites where people were scared it was going to cause a problem and it did not, right? The fact that you have not tried something does not mean it's not going to work. It just means you haven't tried it yet and you don't know, yeah. right? Um, people know their names and email addresses pretty well. You know, um, what I would consider adding is a validator. So you check for common transpositional or type typos in emails so gmail.com if you look at there's a site called westwing.de try typing in your email wrongly in there and it will say did you mean um nice. yep. you know craig sullivan at gmail.com and you go oh yeah yeah it's, it's it's so it's it's being helpful right it's not telling you off and saying you're bad you've got a bad email it's saying oh look you've mistyped it but look i fixed it for you it's what google does when you mistype stuff it doesn't tell you off it says i know what you mean yeah. you can't spell but i know what you're looking for because i'm a computer and i'm smart that's what we were built for um, 
don't confirm the password, right? You can, uh, you should have a little icon that lets you see the password you're typing on mobile so that you don't put errors into it, right? But also, you, you don't need to do this confirmation thing and rules thing, right? You should just get feedback. Is it a strong or a weak password? That's up to the user, right? Let them choose, but don't make them type in these things twice there is no earthly reason why it's uh needed yeah, and i also never got uh also from a from a technical workflow perspective why uh websites ask for like an email once and then the, uh, the passwords and, and twice and like and to confirm it because if you if you have your email wrong that's a way bigger problem because now you're creating an account that you cannot get access to anymore because it's not sending confirmation emails to your to your actual email but if you have your password yeah. wrong there's there's a backup because you can reset your password and it goes to the right email address. So also from that perspective, it doesn't make sense to uh, to have a password field. Uh, twice. I, I, I've tested this and not seen any uh, noticeable impact on data quality, especially yeah. when you have um, a kind of common email error handling routine that corrects stuff. You know, uh, it, there's a there's a limited number of domains. If you take all the domains out of your website and analyze them, you probably find a very small amount of email domains make up a huge percentage, right? You can use your own data to create validation rules to fix people's stuff automatically. Yeah. Be nice. Exactly. <laughs> be nice. And uh, talking yeah. about be nice, uh, being nice, uh, error messages. Yes. Uh, so error messages, we've talked, we've talked uh, and touched on it quite a lot today. But uh, again, often this is one of the things to get right, because surprisingly, there's, an, there's a lot of sites out there that don't do them right. Firstly, as you say, be nice, be helpful, make sure that error messages that you are, are telling people aren't just, this is wrong, this is incorrect. Tell them, okay, this is incorrect, because as, as Greg said, you, you maybe your Gmail uh, account, you, you put in the wrong email address. Uh, maybe you're missing an app, a dot, uh, whatever it may be. Be specific uh, uh, to help the user. Uh, importantly, make sure the error messages are displayed in the right place, typically next to or just below the relevant field so people know. And again, ideally triggering uh, at, the, at the time of input. Uh, We've all been on forms where you either click submit and you're like, there's errors. Where are the errors? I don't know. What, what's wrong? And you have to scroll back up to the very top of the form to see what the errors are. Or even worse, sometimes they're below the fold, below the submit, when you're like, I have no clue what's going on. And eventually you work it out. It's in a different font and it's right at the bottom. And you're yeah. like, I, Especially on mobile, right? There's, there's a high chance that it's out of your viewport. Viewport. Exactly, yeah. And, and by that time, you've gone, you know, yeah. and you've got to be pretty highly motivated to do that. Uh, so make sure it looks like an error messages as well. I mean, I've seen error messages just in standard black or gray type. People miss it all the time. We're conditioned to, to not like red. So error messages should be in red because it will, you know, trigger the, oh, right, I need to do something rather than, oh, you know, it's, it's another bit of text. Never be accusative in them. Never blame the user. Never say it's your fault. You've got this wrong. Just be factual in the message. You know, don't don't annoy them. And then the final point is prevention is always better than cure. Best not to have an error message in the first place. Best that your instructional microcopy is good enough so most people don't make the, the message. That your validation is not overly restrictive on phone numbers or emails that, that, that does it. And of course, ideally, you have inline validation, so you tell them straight away uh, there as well. Uh, and I think, you know, Craig's worked on a lot of defaults and error patterns in the past. 
uh, that are pretty successful that we'll put in the show notes that people can just steal. Yeah, the the, the gov.uk one works, used at several places, and it's been tested at scale qualitatively and quantitatively. So steal it, it works. That's what the internets are for. The internet is for stealing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Steal, rebuild, repurpose, rework. Nice. Uh, next one, uh, I think we, we yeah we touched upon it briefly also. Uh, the password rules, how strong they should be. Yeah, there's it's a kind of fallacy here that I, I don't know how it's developed, but people think that by imposing really complex password rules onto users that it actually protects the security of their business. It doesn't because hackers don't attack individual accounts. They attack at a platform level, right? Unless, of course, you're a celebrity or somebody who has an interest in gaining access to your information. And there are different ways of handling that. Amazon always has you logged in, but when you try and access really sensitive stuff, it will ask you to authenticate again. So it's like a layered set of authentication. It's very clever if you study it. but. They don't have these complex password rules. Why? Because they don't effing work, right? Strict requirements are less safe, right? So here's the problem. If you put in all these complex password rules, users then have to create a password that's really, really complicated, but they can't remember it, right? So what they then do is they end up using that same password on multiple sites, right? So a hacker then breaks into one of those websites, but now they have the access to your Facebook password and your LinkedIn password and your Gmail password and all your other passwords because you use the same one, right? So it's one of the most stupid things we have ever done on the internet. And there is no need for it because uh, the strength comes from the entropy in the password. People don't understand the mass. It's not about the complexity, right? Length actually works better. So Elon Musk tax bill shock is way stronger than some really complicated password with symbols and special characters in it, right? So uh, there's a great XKCD cartoon that says, we've spent 20 years making it harder for humans to remember passwords and easier for computers to guess them. And that's the fundamental problem. So the the rule should be eight characters minimum, right? No rules. Give them feedback on the strength. So say, you know, weak, medium, strong, very strong, so that they can decide, you know, you give them encouragement to have a stronger password. You don't tell them off that it doesn't meet minimum rules. And the support cost of handling the resets, if you're going to go and buy a product and you're like in that mood of, yeah, I want to buy that thing. And you go there and it's like, oh, you need to log in. And you're like, oh, I can't remember my password. So you press the password reset, but they don't send them out immediately. They only send them out every 15 minutes, but you're waiting in your inbox. The reset email never comes. So then you never buy the product. The email comes later and then you think, no, I I already bought it somewhere else. So resetting passwords costs you huge amounts of money and there is no security gain from this kind of stupidity. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening will know 
uh, cracked horse battery staple uh, from <laughs> from the XKCD uh, comic. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, horse correct battery <laughs> staple. Yeah, got to watch that cartoon. That explains it perfectly, right? Really stupid things. Stop doing yeah. it. And uh, but I, I do see. Uh, yeah, and I also I, I once tried to log out of Amazon. Uh, I, I challenge you all to uh, after this podcast go go try try to log out of Amazon. It doesn't really uh, <laughs> it's really hard to do actually. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I do see more and more services these days uh, that don't use passwords at all. They just ask for your email address and then send you a, a login link every time you, you try to log in. You only provide your email address and then just send you a link to log in. Me, Medium has been passwordless now for about two years. It's great. It works fine. There's no passwords, right? Yeah. You don't even need passwords for a lot of systems. Passwords are like some evil thing that we developed to solve a problem a while back, but we've never changed away from because we're stupid, right? There are better things than passwords, right? I'm not sure if we're stupid, but definitely lazy. But it's a good point. Whilst passwords are around, you've got to integrate with native device capabilities like autofill. So if your device or your browser remembers your password or you have a password manager system, then you must make sure that your forms are compatible with this because then the user doesn't actually have to type them in. You completely remove all of the friction, right? We can't fix all the websites on the internet to have nice, easy password rules, but we can at least make sure that these sites actually work with native device and browser capabilities to smooth or remove friction from that problem. Next one, uh, phone number fields. Also an interesting one. Yeah, so phone numbers, uh, out of all the common form fields that you see on most forms, this is the one that we consistently see getting messed up. Um, the first thing to ask with the phone number field is, do you actually need it? You know, there's there's been some research by the Baymard Institute which, which show that unexplained requests for a phone number are a major cause of abandonment. People are saying, why, you know, particularly in e-commerce, you have my address to send the, the, the item to, you have my email address to communicate with me, why do you need my phone number? And if you don't tell them why, you know, if you have a valid reason, tell them why. If you don't, then then they are going to be suspicious. Um, that's point number one. Uh, then also the execution of the phone number field, even if you have to ask for it, is often confusing. Again, Baymar, there's, there's a Baymar study that show that, you know, regardless of how you ask for the phone number, 89% of users in their test entered it in a different format than, than was requested. So you're telling them to do something and they didn't. Because there's so many different ways to do a phone number. Do you have the plus four four or plus three one? Do you have spaces? Do you use brackets? People do it in different ways. And if you are overly restrictive, you're going to create errors and frustration. Just let them type it, type it in the way you want. And if you're using it for your, you know, customer services representatives to to, to call them, doesn't matter. They're human. They will read and they will use it. Or or sort it out at the back end, reformat it. Don't make the user have to think, um, you know, if you have to have the country code on, try and use a smart default to geolocate them beforehand so they're not trying to remember what their country code is if they don't know. Um, I think, Craig, you've had some specific experience on this uh, and typically you just let them do what they want and, and it doesn't cause any issues. We actually put a rule in in uh, 39 countries, 19 different languages. And the rule was is you take all the formatting out and you count up the number of numbers. And if there are eight or more numbers, then you accept them. 
right? And it's never caused a problem. That company operates some of the largest call centers in the world. So you'd expect there to be a data problem. But if somebody in London types in 8318-9290, it's a valid phone number, right? The person in the call center will look at that number and know, oh, that's 0208, right? You know, people are not stupid. They can work this stuff out. They know what the numbers are. It's us that's trying to impose rules. So just strip out all the non- uh, numeric characters, count them up, and if there are eight or more, send them through, right? It will work, right? If you want to be really strict, you can go for like 11, but eight actually works worldwide. I've even checked this. I know what the uh, telephone number setups are on even some of the smallest islands in the Pacific. I went and did the research and eight characters minimum will actually work for every country in the world. Um, another problem worth mentioning is if you do have to ring people, they won't recognize your number, right? So especially these days when people are suspicious, they'll see a number or the number will be withheld and they'll think, I don't know who that is. They can go to my voicemail. So if you actually text them before you're going to call them and say, hey, this is company X here. We're just letting you know we're, we're, we're that call that you requested for 10 a.m., it's in 15 minutes time and it's going to be coming from this number so that you recognize it when you pick it up and actually answer us. But I, but I, uh, I suspect there's going to be an issue there when, uh, I mean, if someone is calling manually, that's fine. They will recognize the number in whatever format it is. But if you if you're going to send those text messages, it's 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 going to be really hard to automate that uh, if those numbers are not in the, in the correct format. So, but what, what, why if, if there's any automation in in text messages, then. Well, if you strip the numbers out of them, what what you're going to end up with is either a number that has a country code in front of it, like 44, right? Uh, and then you're going to have a mobile number, right? If it has zero in it after the front number that looks like an ISO country code, then you can strip the zero out, right? The, I, I don't really see any problem here. I've been able to automate yeah. this stuff perfectly fine. So people will, t especially with American numbers, people will format them in a number of different ways, right? Yeah. Depending on where they are, what age they are. Some will put brackets in. Some will not put the area code in because they'll just put the local number, right? So, But all of these are acceptable. We think that you know computers can't process them and human being can't uh, human beings can't process them and we're wrong on both counts we can fix yeah. them both ways yeah and i guess even if there are exceptions i mean uh for the majority those sms will, messages will will go fine and in, in those i don't know one percent of cases it doesn't you get an error message back and then you can have a human look at it so yeah. that's your problem solved um, yeah, I also had um, an anecdote from from uh, a test that we did, uh, uh, a user test, and it was actually on a, on a website, um, a gifting website, and the, the the phone number was mandatory for the person receiving that gift. So there's even a, <laughs> an extra step of uh, of a worry there. That's uh, okay, but I'm not gonna fill in the phone number of my girlfriend or my mother <laughs> and and no. there was no explanation again uh there was no explanation okay okay we're gonna send them a message or we're gonna use it for xyz zero just a phone number yeah. of the person receiving and um an asterisk behind it indicating it's a mandatory field it's a negotiation it. a lot of people got angry uh, at me <laughs> during that user test well, walk up to somebody randomly at a party with a piece of paper and a pen and say phone number <laughs> right and see what they say to you right That's they might throw their drink in your face right 
But if you give them a reason, there was a famous study of photocopier queues that if you pushed in the front of the queue and gave a reason, then people were more likely to allow you to do yeah. your photocopying, right? By saying, oh, my, my time is running out on the meter on the car. I, I, I've got to photocopy these now. And they were like, oh, okay, go on then, right? <laughs> uh, whereas if you just push in without consent or permission, people get quite cross about it. Yeah, and I right? remember from that specific study that even even giving a reason is better than even giving uh, or it, where it works way better than giving no reason and giving a valid reason is, is only incrementally <laughs> better. Yeah. I think they, 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 the phrase that they use with that study that you mentioned is that uh, if you have like, basically can I skip the line, is like 60% success uh, if you have five copies and uh, if you ask can I skip the line because I make, because I need to make some copies Obviously, <laughs> not a good reason, but then already that that sixty percent goes up to ninety five percent. It's uh, it's uh, that's incredible, and and just adding a valid reason uh, like uh, can I skip the line because I'm in a hurry, then you go to, go up to ninety eight percent. So it's only really so small. Give them a reason for supplying the information. Yeah. A form exactly. is a negotiation, not a hostage demand, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next one: uh, labels and field design. Uh, I think uh, we we'll see uh, more and more the copies of uh, how Google is doing, the Google material design, when uh, the label's actually in the field and once you click it, it moves, moves above. That That's uh, a trend of the last couple of years, but not, not yeah, always the, positive. The, there's a problem in the implementation of some of those. So the, um, there are kind of three core patterns here. There's left-aligned labels, there's right-aligned, and there's top-aligned to start with, right? Um, uh and there are actually different reasons for using the three. Left aligned is good when the labels are really complex information that you don't actually know, right? So the information in the left-hand edge of the labels is more important than them lining up closely with the fields, right? Otherwise, right, right aligned and top aligned uh, work better, right? And top, uh, top aligned label works best of all, right? Material design uh, or certain uh, things that try to copy elements of material design put the field label inside the field, right? Inline labels are bad, right? Because as soon as you start typing, you don't know what the field is, right? The doorbell rings, you look away for two seconds, you look back at the screen, what am I typing here? I have no idea because the label has vanished, right? People do this to save space, but it's stupid because unless your mobile form is so small that it only fits in one window scroll, you're going to have to scroll anyway, right? So you're not really saving space. What you're doing is you think you're saving space, but you're actually cutting out on clarity. Yeah, sometimes I see then when, when, when you click the field, I see the label move uh, top line. So it, it, it moves to above the field, but that's, yeah. Yeah, also not that, can, that can work, but I find it just... Jarring, yeah. right? Why not just put it above the field label there in the first place? Otherwise, what you're doing is animating parts of a form that you're trying to fill out. It, uh, it just, I don't see it's necessary because I've tested this and I know that top aligned works just fine, right? Second problem with the material design stuff is that your, your field labels are probably at base browser default 16 pixels, 100% setting, right? So if you shrink the field label to stuff it up in the top left-hand corner, most people can't read it, especially people who wear glasses or contact lenses or whose sight isn't perfect, 
right? So now you've taken, you think you've been clever by shrinking the the the, the label, but actually you've made the label just uh, uh, unreadable now for half or more of the population, right? So same problems as an inline label now, because even though it's there, you can't actually see what it is because it's too small. So um, my my optimal pattern still is a top aligned label, and the reason for that also is because people look for empty box shapes to fill in. When when people parse the form design, they evaluate the work involved in the form based on the size and shape of the empty boxes. When people look for a search box on an e-commerce site, they're looking for an empty white box. They're not actually looking for a box that has the words, please enter your search term or keyword in here, right? So you actually lose the visibility of the field by putting label information inside the field. So I'm with Luke Wroblowski on this one, top aligned labels all the way. Um, And there's a design, there's a, a, we'll include some links in the resources to a design system that you can steal there. And there's a very good variant from gov.uk. Nice. Uh, Alun, any uh, any additions on, um, on labels and field design? No, no, nothing more to add than than, than on Craig. Say, ideally at the top, um, with inline validation, as we said before. Nice. Yesterday's brainstorm was so good. I really liked Steph's idea of running that test on the call to action buttons. Making them orange will really make them stand out, don't you think? Yeah, right. Do you want to design real A-B test winners and achieve enormous conversion uplift? Then stop brainstorming and take a scientific approach. If you can read Dutch, follow the steps in Online Influence, the bestseller on managementbook.nl. Or enroll in the author's course and become an expert in applying proven behavioral science yourself. Go to onlineinfluence.com for more information and free downloads. Then next one, uh, dropdowns. Yes, dropdowns. We we still see dropdowns used far too much. Um I'm going to share it with the show notes, but I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, it's quite a famous sketch by a British comedian called Mark, Michael McIntyre about forms and he, and he uses drop downs for, a, he's trying to book a ticket at the local cinema and then he has a, a list of every country in the world and, you know, you get repetitive strain syndrome going up and down to try and find your your um, your country and then you find out it's at the top anyway. Uh, so, you know, that that's, that's you know, sums up the problem better than I can, but from a scientific perspective at Zuka, we've done eye tracking research and there's other studies as well that show it's not efficient at all. Um, you know, people are, are moving up and down. They don't know what's going on using the date of birth, um, field as an example, it's much simpler to have three separate text boxes. So that six, six, uh, inputs, you know, or uh, versus, you know, up, down, etc. You know, it, it creates a bad user experience that you don't need. So really, you know, th- there's rare situations where you should be using drop downs. You should use alternatives. You should look at radio buttons, toggles, uh, text inputs. Uh, if you have to use a drop down, think of, of, of ways you can use it better. So you know, make sure you can search. Make sure you've got suggestions. You know, sometimes a suggestion box using page overlays or, or um, just not the native picker in, in a um, in an, uh, an iPhone because, you know, particularly on mobile, you, you can't even see the bottom of the list and you're like, well, you know, you've got like a centimeter to try and scroll. Uh, and it's just generally, 
is a bad user experience that you don't need to have. If people use it because it's an easy, it's a standard form element that we've used since the start. Think about it before you use and, it. And like I said, uh, especially on mobile, the difference uh, uh, can be quite big if you move from one platform to another in how the form actually works with, with those, those uh, dropdowns. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's lazy. And if the, the labels are quite big, then the font gets very small on the native date picker. There's a hard rule here. Only use drop downs if absolutely no alternative exists, right? And it's also it's fine to use them where you have limited space or it's not the primary modifier, right? So if a form is saying in order to continue, you have to make a choice, right? That's bad to use a drop down there because the choices are hidden inside a black box, right? If it's something like a sort control on an e-commerce site, that's something that's been defaulted already. It's a modifier. It's it's not necessary to use the drop down in order to see the page, right? That's the big difference, right? So um, there are scenarios in which it is useful, but almost all other scenarios, there are better alternatives available. Okay. Then we have um, uh, contrast and font issues. Yeah, uh, if you have any audience over sort of 35, 40 years old, then you're going to hit contrast issues in forms. We see this all the time. The error messages, the fields, the 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 micro copy, the instructions, the error messages, right? A lot of these turn out to be really hard for people to read. And there's a couple of contrast and accessibility tools we put in the resource pack. Um, another common problem is that people have started to put text on pattern backgrounds, right? One word of advice, if you're a designer and cannot make a website like look good without putting like italic text on top of pattern backgrounds, then you need to go back to design school, right? Because <laughs> you cannot control the art direction on a responsive site of where the text is going to fall on the image, right? So the, by understanding that, that then means you cannot control whether the light text falls on a black bit or a light bit, which means for lots of people, your text is unreadable. And I have an example from ASOS that I've published on LinkedIn. And it's not just you that's doing this. Lots and lots of really big companies uh, employ designers who do this stupid thing of putting text on a pattern background. And it makes it really, really hard to read. Imagine if instead of having white paper, we had paper with a herringbone or a dog tooth pattern on it, right? You try taking notes on that and see how you get on. Yes, I think that's that's a big little red flag showing you go, the designer designed this on, on this nice big MacBook screen or, or uh, yeah. iMac screen, uh, but didn't use it on a mobile. <laughs> then yeah. the text is uh, somewhere uh, And so different. the text is in a different yeah. place on the image than what the, and uh, that's the thing with the responsive sites. If you're floating text on patterns, you you cannot really control where it lands unless you build it into the image. You know, If you are going to put text on a pattern background, put it on a semi um, a semi transparent lozenge right or put a piece of color space and have you know you know uh, 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 shop all socks you know so it's the sock collection shop all socks you can put this on a panel that floats on top of the background image and then people can see the image but they can also read and notice the call to action and the text that goes with it there's no point in putting text 
on the background of something, if people can't read it, you may as well have not written the text in the first place. Um, and then the size of it, um, these accessibility tools will show you that there's a relationship between the contrast of the font, but also the size. The smaller the font gets, the harder it is to get decent contrast on it. So it's really important. Um, if you are using body copy on your website, it should be 100% of browser default minimum, right? And if you are using serif fonts for your body copy, which actually uh, take up a smaller font space internally within that shape, right? You need to max that to 130 or 150% um, because those serif fonts are harder to read at the same size as the sans serif ones. Really important point that don't make your text too small because then it makes it even harder to read just like the contrast issue. And if you do both, then you're totally hosed. Yeah, nice. And uh, great, now now we've uh, touched upon uh, quite some things uh, inside those, uh, those forms. So now the question is, how do I go about uh, finding out the problem areas uh, on my forms? So uh, let's assume that you've, you've been smart and installed a form analytics product. Um, so you want to base it on the data. I mean, obviously, it's always good to, to, to interact with the form yourself, but let's look at the data. So what sort of data do you need to look at to see where the issues are? Um, so the first part that people tend to go to is the abandonment data. So specifically, which was the last field that people interacted with on the form before they abandoned? which is a good place to start, but you, you need to look at two things here. Firstly is the volume. That'll give you the, 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 the areas where most people drop off. However, sometimes that will just be the submit button. doesn't tell you everything because people are triggering errors on the submit button. And sometimes it'll be the first, the first field, title, because you'll get a tire kick who just clicks in and then, and then goes out again. So you can't just look at that. You also need to look at the abandonment rate. So what proportion of people who interact with a field abandon on it. Um, and that's important often when you've got conditional forms, if there's certain questions that only get shown to certain people. So we often see if there's a, a, an age checker field, so checking you're over 18, it has a massive abandonment rate because they're throwing out the under 18s. Doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, but you, you've got to take all that into account. I, I thought so, under 18s were smart enough just to add, enter an age that's... That's, <laughs> I that's <know>. true. <laughs> But yeah, the, the, um, but then abandonment, the, the next question is, okay, well, is that a good abandonment rate? You know, it's higher, you know, is it good or bad? Or, you know, how do I understand if this is good or, or bad or should I expect this? So, you know, the first thing you can look at is benchmarks. So at Zuko, we have a number of benchmarks you can look on our website um, and you can compare against that. You've got to be careful because every field and every form is different, so it's only a sense check. So you can you, you can take that as to say, okay, am I in the ballpark of this? You know, being reasonable. But what we always like to do is to dig deeper. You know, we, the, the hypothesis is you often get your best insights in looking at the behavioural differences between those who complete a form and those who abandon the form. So you look at the other data uh, and compare those two segments. So. For example, we often look at field returns, so people having to come back to a field, often driven by an error message. So you can then see, okay, you know, if 
you know, 50% of people who complete and 50% of people who abandon go back to the same field. You're like, okay, well, there's no difference there. So it doesn't tell me that this is necessarily a driver for abandonment. But if you see 50% of people who abandon go back to the phone number field and, and that, you know, 10% of those who complete go back to it, you can say there's a significant difference. I mean, you can test it statistically, of course, as well. But that's where you see, okay, there is a difference there. People who abandon are going back to the field and then they are ultimately abandoning. So that tells me I need to focus in on that field. Uh, you can do the same with time. Are these people spending more time if they abandon on that field versus complete? So it gets that difference in the data really helps you hone in. And that's then when you overlay your experiential stuff, you're looking at the form, okay, why might that be? And that's when you create your hypothesis. You know where the, the issues are. You use the data and interacting with the form yourself to form those hypotheses and create the tests to optimize as you go forward. Are there any, um, we mentioned uh, analytics, um, uh, form analytics tools uh, a couple of times. Are there any specific tools that you guys want to mention or highlight for this or? Zuko, um, and that's the same one that Alan will mention. You can build your own stuff in Google Analytics, but it's just way, way harder. It's too much of a specialized area. I've only ever seen one person actually implement a half-decent event tracking model for forms. It's just get a specialized product to do this, and Zuko does it pretty well. But also have session replay as well, because session replay is going to give you some insights into the behavior, which will augment the data that you get. So you get a bit of qual data and a bit of quant data together on form interactions, and also usability test the forms too. That will give insights as well. But people always ask, what's the what should my form conversion rate be? And the answer to that is if you're into continuous improvement, it should be higher than it was last month, right? So if it's not changing every month, then you're not doing anything. Exactly. That's that's the that's always the answer, right? It should just be improving. <laughs> whatever the uh, whatever the competition is doing doesn't really matter. Don't look at the competition. You are only competing with yourself, right? <laughs> uh, make yours. If you concentrate on making yours better rather than looking at the size of everybody else's, then you might actually be better competition for them. Alan, so uh, I want to. Uh, so one question about uh, Zuko itself. Um, what's the, what's the one feature you think that uh, Zuko currently has that people are are underusing? That people should be using way more than they currently do. Uh, it is probably the field flow, so you can see how people flow through yeah. the form. Uh, and that's also very important when you look at the submit button that we talked about before, because you can see how they flow through the form, going through nicely, hit submit button, whoa, where do they go? Some of them jump out straight away, but some go way back to, to different things. And that's where, you know, your nice flow disintegrates. And it, it, you can look at this on an aggregated basis so you can get your answers pretty quickly just by looking at, I want to look at people who abandon and I want to look at people who abandon who try to submit what happens. And then you can get the answer quickly. That focuses you on the form. You can then look at some of the more detailed data, uh, which then enables you to really focus in on these are the problem areas, overlay session replay, et cetera, and then form the hypotheses. Nice. Okay. Next section, uh, what are some uh, things we can do to the forms uh, that help people go through them um, uh, faster? What are some time savers for, for those users? Remove friction, get them through faster, or make things um, easier to actually complete depending on the device that they're using. So 
Baymar shows that about a quarter of people out there don't have any form of address lookup, right? If you think I really want to type my whole address in on a mobile keyboard, please don't make me do that. You can save, you know, maybe a minute of my time, right? Just give me an address lookup. It's really easy to do. There are free solutions. You can use Google. Um, there are also commercial ones. But when I've A-B testing, having address lookup versus no address lookup, it's 5 to 35% improvement in checkout conversion rate. That's worth a lot of money, right? And it's amazing. If people are able to find their address, right, then there is a one-to-one -one correlation with their ability to actually convert, right? It's amazing. Um, you should also make use of as many express or native payment integrations as you can. So that will either be device or browser specific, or it'll be a service specific. So you've got Google Pay, Amazon Pay, Apple Pay, you've got Shopify App Pay, you've got PayPal, right? And all of these offer single click checkout options, right? No, you don't need to fill in your address. No, you don't need all the email and everything. It's like you go click, click, and then you're on the thank you page, right? You haven't had to go through the seven-step checkout. Do you think that will work or not? You have to test these things. Sometimes it's a smoke test to work out what payment options would get me the biggest return if I offered them on my site, and then you offer them. But, you know, it, it, don't be an idiot here. If 70% of your revenue, a lot of Western European sites, about 50 to 70% of their revenue will be coming from Apple devices, why don't you have Apple Pay on your website? <laughs> that would be crazy. So, um, you know, you can run an A-B test or smoke test to find out these, but generally speaking, offer uh, one-click express payment options or native integrated payment options. Yeah, yeah and make sure to offer local payment options if you have um, um, for example with the Netherlands uh, Ideal is a, a big payment option here in the Netherlands uh, if you don't I guess if you offer that uh, in addition to to PayPal and credit card that uh, will greatly increase um, uh, payment from uh, from the Netherlands at least and it was actually so to, to make things faster I would always I, I would assume that uh, when you work with clients, uh, often it also comes down to removing a lot of fields. I mean, we we've been talking about uh, specific elements of the the the, the form, but uh, re removing form fields. I mean, I, I see a lot of forms uh, that that include information where the 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 personal team building that form says, okay, that, but that's nice to have for us as a company. Uh, we would like to know uh, uh, their company name or their country of operation or the department or uh, their their function title, but. Really, you're only sending them um, a, a booklet or a PDF or a white paper. The, the only real thing that you need is an email address to do that and all the extra stuff. It's a trade-off, you know. It's a trade-off between yeah. – I often ask people, what are these fields used for? What is the life of this field after they press the submit button? And if you don't know that, then you're not able to challenge whether that information is required, even valid. The information may actually be putting people off. But don't fall into this trap of thinking that removing fields is the game, right? Because I've discovered several times – so on a um, – 
uh, on a booking site. So let's say if you're booking um, a music band or clowns to come to your children's party, right? Okay. Let's say we decide we want to remove the field off there that says, do you have any other special requirements, right? Because we think that more people will convert if there's less fields. But actually, it's really important for them to tell you their special requirements for this gig. Oh, it's going to be this kind of party. We're going to be in this situation. We need you to turn up half an hour before. It's really important for me to give you that information, yet you have taken away the field that would allow me to supply it. So therefore, I don't have confidence that you will then be able to offer me the service that I wanted. So actually, removing fields can harm conversion in some cases if this is information that people want to give or expect should be given in order for you to be able to process or somehow make the service work. So sometimes people think, well, how are they going to be able to do that if they haven't asked me for the date or the time of when I want my thing, right? You're sort of thinking, um, why haven't they asked me for the date? I need to give them the date because it's my son's birthday, right? He needs to have it on this day. And they might be thinking, oh, we'll ask them for that information later, but it may have actually put people off converting. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that as well. You, you know, obviously you don't want to be asking, you know, pointless things, but it's not always the most important factor. You know, across our database, we see some of the longest forms of the biggest converters. The, the classic example is local government forms. They convert about 85% across our database, despite the fact they average 71 different inputs. They are the longest. But, but I guess the, the, the user motivation for those will be quite very, well, motivational necessarily that I want to do this, but it's the only place I can do this. So in, in <laughs> There's no the, competition. <laughs> well, yeah, like I say, there's a general principle. You don't want to be asking things you don't yeah. need to doesn't always correlate to conversion rates you've got to overlay the motivation but that doesn't mean that you're allowed to design evil forms right simply because you work in local government yeah i think some of them do to be fair <laughs> in fact there should be a bigger onus upon you because so many people are using them that by putting pain and friction into your lives you're actually harming your local populace which i guess is against the whole reason for you being there as a local authority in the first place is not to do things like that so don't put friction into uh don't scale friction into millions of people's lives please <laughs> and last one uh to the transition between stages so uh, often forms are cut up uh, between different pages or or tabs or however you want to define that um how can we make that uh, transition easier yeah, what's the ideal form length? That's uh, I've run so many tests, and it's about the kind of psychology of the chunking. It's how things are grouped, right, and whether they feel that they're being put into logical steps that you would kind of expect, you know, and that can be within a form, right? So you might have three sections to fill within a form, which are actually three kind of interactions. So some sites chunk these out into single steps, like gov.uk is one question at a time. How old are you? Where do you live, right? And and that would be exhausting for e-commerce, right? But for the type of things that they're doing where it has to be accessible to a wide range of people with different cognitive abilities, right? They need to make it very, very, very simple, right? So you've got to be aware 
awe of the context. But the the big thing about this transitioning stuff and handling um, people's movement through the forms is you need to make sure that it works, right? Because we find that there are forms where you can't go back or forward within the form. AO.com is a retailer uh beautiful usability and some great stuff on their website but their checkout you can go back and forward in it and it doesn't wipe or lose any of the information you can go out to the rest of the website look at another product and come back to the checkout and all the information you filled in earlier on is still there because it's got session state handling right so you know um uh be uh, handling never break the back button allow people to go back and forward allow people to exit the process and come back in again right don't wipe or lose their information right and make sure that you handle you know things like basket state don't throw their basket away after 15 minutes right the phone could ring the the doorbell goes you know and then you come back and your basket is empty so you need to think about how you Keep, keep that information investment that people have already made and not destroy it. It happens so often too by a girlfriend that she starts shopping one day and then uh, gets distracted and then wants to continue the next day and then everything gone. This whole Basket shopping list gone. of 50 items. Yeah. It's a basket timeout. There, uh, notice on Amazon, right? Anyone tell me what the basket timeout is on Amazon? Never. Yeah, <laughs> that's one. You, if you want to remove so it, it doesn't people matter. can remove it. So why remove it for them? Yeah, I go to another computer like three weeks later. Oh, it's still there in yep. my basket. Great. That's <laughs> what I want, right? <laughs> exactly. So we've uh, reached the end of our, our nice uh, list. Um, any any final comments on uh, on how to approach this as an uh, as an uh, optimization team or um, 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 yeah yeah where where to get. Uh, started with this? Well, first, let's say, obviously, I'm slightly biased, but make sure you have data <laughs> yeah. specifically for the form, not just Google no. Analytics. It's you know, whether that's Zuka, whether it's, you know, Content Square, whatever, whatever it is, make sure you're looking at each individual field. I, I, I guess Google Analytics works if you if you have the, the, the fields on a separate page each time, like Craig just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's... it's what why spend you know yeah. half a day setting that up when you can exactly. spend 10 minutes yeah and you can collect that stuff but then it's incredibly difficult to analyze yeah. right that's the problem because people do not go through a form linearly step by step right they jump around a lot so how are you going to make sense of that you know it's actually quite hard to do analysis of that stuff and that's where zuko gives you uh, a smart cut a shortcut to um, that type of analysis because they've worked out how to do it for you already. Uh, I mean, for me, it's you need qual and quant tools, so session session replay as well as something uh, like Zuko. You need real device hardware to actually test um, uh, your, your your forms on, and you know you need to have some kind of design pattern system here to have a consistent way of handling everything that you do on forms. It's like a forms vocabulary and some people will call it a design system or a design pattern library. Either way, 
build a set of reusable components that you know work and just keep using them. Stop inventing new forms or different styles of forms, right? Find one thing, right? One core atomic pattern from a field level and build this up into your design pattern for all your forms. And then you know, at least if it's broken, it's broken everywhere the same way and you can fix it everywhere the same way. Exactly. Yeah, and I would actually argue that... um I mean, everyone has Google Analytics because it's free, but I would argue that having a form, if, you, if you're in optimization and you needed to choose between a Google Analytics tool or a form analytics tool, uh, assuming you have forms on your website uh, converting people, I think the form analytics tool will be way more helpful to you than, than Google Analytics. Nice. So we have a, a, a really a big list of uh, show notes for everyone listening. Um, uh, very um, uh, helpful, I think, uh, in uh, if you want to get started and as context uh, um, to what we uh, what we just spoke about. A lot of links in there, so make sure to uh, check those out, and uh, of course, uh, make sure to uh, check uh, Zuko out. My final question for for both of you, and uh, I want a different answer from both of you. Uh, who should I invite for next episode of the Zero Cafe podcast? I'll jump in first there. Uh, we, we've talked about Luke Rublinski yep. many times. If you could get him, it's R- you should. Rublowski. <laughs> Rublowski, sorry. If you could get him, I, I would definitely get him. And he, he wrote a great book a number of years ago. So just understanding that it, it seems to be very relevant, you know, uh, and see how things have changed since then. Okay, yeah. My recommendation to you, Guido, is the person who wrote the precursor to that book, um, Caroline Jarrett. And Caroline has been working for decades uh, uh, doing um, qual survey work, improving the core UX of surveys and forms, right? And people's interactions with them, both in the public sphere, but also in the kind of private and commercial sector right stone cold she knows more about this stuff than anyone else on 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 the planet she has a new book out about designing good surveys everybody who does anything in cro should read that book because it's a gold mine of information so she should be on your list because i i'm sure you would find talking to her absolutely fascinating gentlemen thank you so much for this uh, uh episode um um thank you for your time and i hope to talk to you guys soon thank you thank you thank you for listening to this episode and as always you can find the show notes for this episode on our website www.zero.cafe talk to you next time and always be optimizing